Welcome to the podcast for 1776 Forward. We're the grassroots movement that's crowdsourcing activism for the cause of philosophical liberalism. Stand up. Speak out. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode in our 1776 Forward podcast. Today, I'm so excited because I have Rob Chazinski here with me, and we're going to be talking about an article I saw he wrote back in fall of last year, 2020. It's an article where he's making the case against Western civilization. But from what I even know of Rob, I don't think this is against Western civilization the way most people might be talking about that issue nowadays. So welcome, Rob. And tell me, what is the problem with Western civilization? Well, well thanks for having me on, Joya. Okay, so that that's my clickbait headline. That's my sort of trolling headline, right? Uh, and this is an old technique. You put an inflammatory headline on what is actually a, a reasonable article. Um, so yes, obviously I'm not, you know, for those who know my background and know what I've been ad advocating over the years, I'm not against Western civilization in the sense of I'm not against Aristotle and John Locke and, you know, the founding fathers and, and all of that. Uh, it's the term Western civilization as a description for that sort of basket of ideas that I think has become obsolete in some ways and in some ways was always a bit of a misnomer. Uh, and and sort of like I just describe it as being a little bit like the term third world, right? So third world was this term that was we used a lot in the mid 20th century or late 20th century for me uh, that you referred to. It has certain implications of referring to a certain kind of country that was usually poor and backward and uh, chaotic as a pope, but but was not aligned with either of the major powers in the Cold War. But since then, that term has become kind of obsolete. It doesn't describe the world anymore, and I think. Western civilization has something of the same thing to it. That's fascinating to me because that's definitely in line with our mission here with 1776 Forward. I mean, even in our name, you can hear we're talking about the ideals of 1776 and then thinking about, okay, how do they really apply in the 21st century? But I'm even curious, this idea you mentioned that it was a misnomer all the way from the beginning. So tell me your thoughts about that. Sure. All right, so the problem I have with the term Western civilization is on the one hand, it's not universal enough. On the other hand, it's also not specific enough. Now, let's talk about the universal side of things. So it's not universal enough in the sense that I was just talking about where you know the third world is kind of an obsolete term. And that is that Western civilization is no longer Western in, in the strict geographical sense. Uh, you know, I think that the term Western civilization sort of had its greatest currency in the culture around 1900-ish, where there was this very distinct, you know, was the East is East and West is West and never the twain shall meet. There's this whole sense that there was, you know, a, a Western European civilization that had distinctive characteristics. And then this was in contrast to, you know, the Eastern philosophies and, and, and the traditional societies of much of the rest of the world. And like I said, that's something that has become obsolete. It was already becoming obsolete at that time. I mean, you know, at the time Kipling wrote those words, you know, the British were uh, had been running a bunch of uh, uh, of universities and medical schools and things like that in India, and transmitting Western ideas very broadly across India. Um, and of course, today that's it's 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 gone much much further than that. You know that the uh, uh, 
Southeast Asia is a giant hub of technology and science and industrialism. Uh, India is a, a scientific and industrial powerhouse now. Um, and uh, you know, we're, we're, uh, what we would consider Western ideas about science have taken off and, and have, uh, um, ha have you know, they produce great innovators and people who understand it very deeply. Uh, and even Africa is now beginning to develop. I mean, it was for a long time after colonialism, it was kind of a basket case. It's starting to recover. And I think one of the great stories of the 21st century is going to be the rise of Africa, uh, unless something horrible goes wrong. Um, and so the ideas, the West, what do we think of as Western ideas? And then I, I should throw in also aspects of individualism, aspects of, uh, of, of our distinctive Western political heritage, uh, representative government and freedom of speech and things like that. Those have spread much, much more widely. So for example, um, uh, we were just talking about this in one of the Shrikant's podcasts the other day, that uh, you know one of the great examples of people fighting for freedom in the last few years has been in Hong Kong. Right, so here's you know, the, these ideas of ideas of political freedom, of representative government, of free speech, have made it to China and established themselves very, very strongly, uh, at least in Hong Kong. Or it, East versus West used to be something that differentiated uh, Western Europe from Eastern Europe, especially in the Cold War years. Well, right now there are demonstrations and marches going on in Russia and in Belarus. You know, some of the fiercest fights for political freedom are in these areas that are the heart of the, the Russian uh, uh, Eastern uh, 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 lands. So this idea of this being a, a geographic phenomenon is kind of obsolete. So that's why I say it's not universal enough. And you could say, okay, well, those people have become Westernized, but by the same token, you could say the ideas have become de-Westernized by being spread out across the rest of the world and in every, you know, in, in incorporated in some way into practically every culture and every society. Now, I think the more interesting argument is that it's not specific enough, right? So it's not universal enough because it doesn't allow for the spread across the world, but it's also not specific enough. So for example, here's a some example that wasn't in my article. It's something I just saw in the last couple of days. The French government has been complaining about has been complaining about um, sort of the woke, uh, politically correct ideas coming to France from America, because they view that as a challenge to the French national identity and French national heritage. Right. So this is the idea. You know, they they are they view themselves as the um, successors to the Enlightenment. You know, the Enlightenment mm -hmm. is associated, just uh, perhaps unfairly in some ways, with France. You know, Voltaire and all of that. And they also see themselves as having a universal French culture, uh, which they I think is a necessity for them because they have large numbers of you know immigrants from Africa and Arab immigrants and that sort of thing. So they have to have a national culture that is universal. So they're saying we don't want any of your American woke ideas. Now, here's the big irony about that though, which is if you know the history of critical theory and political correctness and all of that, where did a whole bunch of those ideas come from? They came from French philosophers. They came from, you know, Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida. I think Derrida was Belgian, but you know, uh, he spoke French. So, you know, they come from this. And and if you really trace them all back, I think you could trace them probably back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, you know, the great French philosopher of the 18th century. So, you know, the irony is that the anti-Western ideas 
that are the, 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 the biggest opponents of Western civilization are acting on ideas created in the West. You know, so these, these, the French are now complaining about all these horrible ideas that were originated from France. And that's the problem with the idea of Western civilization being not specific enough because it's sort of a catch-all for anything done in the West, but there's been a lot of different and often opposed and, and, and contradictory things done in the West. So, you know, if you want to talk, so you tick down things like, um, you know, is, is reason and science a Western value? Well, yes, but the West also produced the romantic philosophers of the 19th century who said reason and science are terrible there when we were wrong, we should go back to the Middle Ages. Uh, or we should you know, go to our blood and our feelings and, and uh, the whole sort of Nietzschean and uh, uh, proto-fascist kind of uh, viewpoint. If you say, well, political freedom and freedom of speech and representative government, these are distinctly Western. Well, who are the people who created the leading totalitarian ideologies of the 20th century that have since spread across the world. Well, it's a bunch of white guys in Central Europe, right? It's a bunch of Germans, basically, who did this. Uh, French and Germans and Russians, but you know, most you know, Central Europe is uh, is is the origin of a lot of this. Um, I think actually the term Western civilization, in the first usage of it, was something of a that this idea of it being a catch-all that puts a lot of things together that don't necessarily belong together. I think that was part of the deal for the beginning. Because I, I suspect what was happening, and I, I get this from the way that religious conservatives in America will tend to use it, and even some of these nationalist conservatives of the sort of Trumpist style that we have in this era, the way they use it is they say, we're for Western civilization. But what they really are trying to do is they're trying to say, we're going to take all the distinctive great things that, that the West produced, but what they really mean by it is we're for the Judeo-Christian tradition, right? So. Mm -hmm. And they will say we're for Western civilization, but what they really mean is we're for Christian values and Christian civilization and you know, bringing back the power of the Catholic Church in some of the cases. And we're for throwing out all the ideas of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is where we all went wrong. We don't want liberalism. We don't want uh, uh, the use of unfettered reason. We want the authority of the church. And we want to have, we want to reinstate Christianity as a major power in the culture. So you have this thing where they, that Western civilization being used as a catch-all for everything from traditional Christian, from basically medieval-style traditional Christianity, to the Enlightenment, to all the anti-Enlightenment uh, ideas of the you know the romanticists of the 19th century, the totalitarians in the 20th century. It, 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 you can't have one term that catches all those things and have it really be meaningful. So that's why my proposal is we should throw out the term Western civilization and settle on the term Enlightenment civilization, basically taking the ideals of the Enlightenment, the aspirations of the Enlightenment as the distinctive Western contribution and defending that and trying to defend it and promote it and advance it. I say amen to that proposal, even as an atheist. It's certainly part of our whole mission here with 1776 Forward is to really think about and unpack what were the important ideas and ideals from the Enlightenment. So I would love to hear from you more what you really think the Enlightenment was all about. What is it that's really valuable in the Enlightenment that we should try to be celebrating and saving and expanding and extending? And I even want to ask, you mentioned Rousseau 
at one point, who I know many people right. often think of as being an enlightenment thinker, especially given his timeline, his chronology. Right. But I sense that you would not consider Rousseau part of your your enlightenment thinkers. So, yep. so tell us more then about what you really see as what is the enlightenment and what is the value for the 21st century? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, so let's start it with Rousseau. And also I'm going to throw Kant in there as well because there are certain people who are regarded as enlightenment philosophers. Uh, Rousseau, I think, is a very clear case because, yes, chronologically, he was smack dab in the middle of the 18th century, the period of the enlightenment, the, during the ferment of the French enlightenment in particular. But he's also very famous as being the grumpy guy who is raining on everybody's parade uh, and, and arguing against the current uh, the, of, of ideas that, that, he would, that were surrounding him. Uh, so he actually wrote, rose to fame with an essay where people, uh, it was an essay contest where people were asked to uh, write something about uh, the, the great progress that had been made in the arts and sciences. And he he won with an essay saying, progress, schmagress, we haven't made any progress at all. We were all better off when we were noble savages and civilization just ruined everything. And so that's, that's sort of his launch of his intellectual career and his fame. And so he was clearly a guy who was swimming against the mainstream of enlightenment and the, the sort of Voltairean uh, uh, version of the enlightenment that, that we mostly think of. Um, Immanuel Kant, uh, there's more reason to, to view Kant as being in that strain because he had some things that he wrote, but there's a great, um, he wrote a famous essay called What is Enlightenment? And it's about how you should dare to know and be bold and ask questions. Now it was very narrowly, it was sort of a defense of Protestantism and religion really. Uh, the idea that you should be able to examine religious questions on your own without having to go through the authorities of the church. But he had certain, you know, superficially aspects of, of the Enlightenment. He's often viewed as the last Enlightenment philosopher, and I think he's the last one because he killed it off. Uh, so we can get into this in more detail, but I think you know, he came up with a set of ideas that was sort of couched in Enlightenment terms, but really set the table for the 19th century backlash against the Enlightenment. Uh, he famously said, I want to, to, uh, to deny reason in order to make room for faith. And he, people quibble with the translation. He deny it or limit it or something like that. But the idea that reason is narrow and limited and there's something deeper beyond that that we have to preserve, that's really setting, you know, it's, 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 he actually described himself as being inspired by Rousseau in some ways. And it sets the terms for going into the 19th century backlash the romanticist backlash against reason and enlightenment. So in defining what the enlightenment is, I want to say one thing that I tend to do is I talk about the ideals or aspirations of the enlightenment. Because when you talk about the specific ideas, there's a lot of different variations. There's no one enlightenment philosophy. There's a bunch of people making their own contributions and giving different versions of it. And I think you could argue that for the most part, they didn't quite get there in terms of what they were intending to do or trying to do, they weren't fully able to do it, which is one of the reasons it was vulnerable to a backlash uh, philosophically in the 19th century. But I think the, the overall aspirations and ideals of the Enlightenment are fairly well known and well documented. And it's the idea that the, the Enlightenment really began with John Locke in the, in the, in the 17th century, late 17th century with uh, the, his um, essay concerning human understanding and with Newton, with his great achievements in science. And it gave people this tremendous confidence um, uh, that reason and science can understand the world, that they can open up new vistas for understanding. All right, so I recently had uh, did an interview with 
with Brad Thompson, who has a new book out about uh, the philosophical foundations, the influence of enlightenment philosophy on the founding fathers. And uh, one of the things he talks about is how this confidence in science and reason, the, the achievements of Locke and Newton, sort of gave them the idea that not only could science and reason solve all these questions in the physical sciences, they could be used as the basis for advances in morality and advances in politics. And their whole idea was we can create a moral and political system that is built on understanding the nature of man and using reason to understand the nature of man. Uh, I think Jefferson sort of sums up what the uh, thing that kicked off the enlightenment was when he, he talked about the, the three greatest men who ever lived in his view. And I think he had busts of them in, in, in Monticello. And they were uh, Francis Bacon, John Locke, and Isaac Newton. Now, Francis Bacon was sort of a precursor to those, of one, of the, one of the great scientists and, and pro-reason philosophers of sort of the late Middle Ages, early Renaissance. And uh, so Bacon, Locke, and Newton, and these were considered also by the French philosophers to be huge, you know, to be what kicked everything off for them. This idea that, that the power of science and reason. So that's the first foundation of the Enlightenment, the, the, the main theme that runs through the Enlightenment. Now, the other thing about the Enlightenment is that I think partly because of this belief in the power of reason, they also looked at human nature and they were accepting of the idea of self-interest as being a valid and legitimate uh, action, uh, a valid and legitimate uh, foundation for morality or aspect of morality. And specifically the idea that the job of human beings is to flourish and uh, prosper and be happy here on earth as individuals. And so this idea of the sort of the, the, the individualism, uh, they didn't actually have the term individualism I, 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 uh, from what I can tell. The individualism was actually a 19th, early 19th century uh, coinage and it was coined by the, by, by, by the socialists to describe, to describe what they were against. But you know, without having the name for it, and perhaps because they didn't have collectivism to contrast it with as an ideology, uh, individualism was central, a central theme of the Enlightenment uh, philosophers. And the idea that, you know, only the individual can think, only the individual can be happy. It's a, uh, this guy named, uh, somebody you should talk to at some point is, is an old friend of mine named Pat Mullins, who is um, a professor of, a history professor, and he wrote a great book, turned me on to this years ago, about a guy named Jonathan Mayhew. He was a, a New England preacher in the middle of the 18th century, had a big, inf he unfortunately died at a young age before the American Revolution, or he'd be much better known, but he had huge influence on John Adams and Paul Revere in this sort of generation of Bostonians prior to the, leading up to the revolution. And uh, he had this great, you know, he was a, uh, his central thing was arguing in favor of religious freedom and against the, uh, there was an attempt to sort of foist the control of the Anglican church on, on, on all these uh, purit all these congregationalists up in Boston. And uh, he talked about how you know, the people who propose to think for us don't propose also to feel and to suffer for us. And, you know, this idea that only the individual can think and also only the individual can, will ultimately experience the benefits or rewards of his action. Uh, only the individual will be happy or miserable. And so somebody else telling you what to do is, you know, proposing to think for you. And, but at the same time, you're the one who's going to be individually doing the, the, the suffering if they do the thinking wrong. So that's a very, very enlightenment, uh, uh, a central theme of the enlightenment. And then of course, 
the Enlightenment is the era where political freedom was born as a as a theory and a, the whole philosophy and theory of political freedom, representative government, freedom of speech that was all worked out, um, basically starting from you know Locke and Milton and going through going through the Enlightenment. Now I'm curious to hear more how you think about how we take those Enlightenment ideas and bring them forward into the 21st century. So you had mentioned, and I guess we'll give a shout out to our friend Shrikant and his meetup group podcast, YouTube yeah. show called 52 Living Ideas. And you and I have been part of what I found to be an excellent series all about the Romantic Manifesto. And we've been diving deep into romanticism in art. And as part of that series, you gave, I thought, a really phenomenal presentation thinking about combining enlightenment philosophy with romanticism in art. And I'm wondering if you can say more about how you think then about how we take enlightenment philosophy and combine it with romanticism in art or with later developments in the culture that bring us up to the 21st century. Yeah, I, I think that's that's good. I mean, I, the reason, one of the reasons I like the idea of enlightenment civilization rather than Western civilization is Western civilization tends to be, you know, I think this the reason this is popular among conservatives is it tends to have this idea, well, this is a heritage handed down to us. You know, it's this unchanging thing sort of plopped in our laps and our job is just to, to conserve it uh, and to, to, to look backwards at it. Whereas enlightenment civilization, I, yeah, I've mentioned that the enlightenment, I define it often in terms of aspirations and ideals for which they had all sorts of specific ideas as to how to defend it, some of which were better and some of which were worse uh, or, or less effective. But, uh, I like the idea of viewing it as ideals and aspirations because what it says to us is this isn't a something, you know, a heritage plopped in your lap. This is a torch that you're expected to grab and then carry on uh, and go take it into the future and get, you know, approach closer to this ideal and, and, and do more with this than the philosophers of the Enlightenment did. So it's, it's an unfinished business. It's something we can carry forward into the future. I think there's a lot of things that can be... Um, incorporated in that. Well, I mean, and, and we were talking about, we're, we're doing this thing on, on Ayn Rand's um, Romantic Manifesto, but Ayn Rand's philosophy in general, I view as a continuation of that enlightenment and in so many ways, a completion of that enlightenment tradition. And I think she did two, well, I, I, won't, I'll say, I won't say two, because I'll probably come up with a third as I keep going, <laughs> but she did At a couple of two. crucial things. Yeah. <laughs> well, she did a couple, I want to get to the essentials. So, so a couple of crucial things. One is she took the Industrial Revolution. And you know, the Industrial Revolution was in many ways a product of Enlightenment ideas. It was a product of the Enlightenment uh, confidence in science, you know, the science and technology that was spurred by uh, the Enlightenment thinkers produced all this you know, technological innovation, the ability to create steam engines and uh, uh, electricity and the tremendous understanding of uh, the natural world and, and of, of medical science. I mean, you know, the, the eventual extension of human lifespans is a tremendous amount. All of that is a product in some ways of the scientific spirit uh, uh, and the confidence in science set off by the enlightenment. But during the enlightenment, it never really, it didn't get that much traction, traction in terms of direct practical improvement of human life. And it was in the 19th century that that really began to, or you know, the industrial revolution, that that really began to transform human life completely. And the great historical irony is by the time it did that, the philosophers had moved on. And my favorite example of that is um, the novel Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. So here's Mary Shelley uh, 
hanging out with Percy Shelley and Ward Byron and Polidori and all these guys, these, these young uh, leading poets and, and intellectuals of the early 19th century and of the Romantic movement. And all this tremendous ferment of the Industrial Revolution is going on around them. And what are they doing? Well, they're off in Switzerland uh, telling each other ghost stories because they're fascinated with mysticism and with the Middle Ages. And so they all challenge each other to write ghost stories. And so Mary Shelley says, okay, as her, you know, so Polidori writes, I think, one of the first uh, vampire stories. It's a famous thing that comes from it. And then Mary Shelley writes Frankenstein. And I actually read the novel. I mean, it's, it's a little different from the various versions that have been put on film. But if you read the novel, the, it's bracketed by uh, uh, a very Enlightenment-style explorer who's trying to get to the North Pole, and he discovers uh, Victor Frankenstein wandering around, looks, searching for his monster that he's created uh, up, in the, up on the frozen wastes uh, on the ice flows. And he takes him in, and he sort of tries to nurse him back to health. And before he dies, uh, Victor Frankenstein tells him the, the whole Frankenstein story as, as a flashback, and the lesson that this ship captain is supposed to take from it is too much obsession in the search of not in the search for knowledge is bad. And so the guy takes the message that, Oh, he should turn back and not try to keep going through the ice to get to the North pole because he's, you know, it's less, less he suffer from the same obsession with knowledge that, that destroyed Victor Frankenstein. So there's this whole anti enlightenment, anti reason, anti science kind of message. Uh, that science is going to produce monsters and the desire for too much knowledge is bad, that is happening right at the point where all that science and technology, instead of creating monsters, is creating this enormous improvement in human life. I mean, you have to go look. There's a, a famous graph that goes around of showing, um, it's supposed to show uh, like income per capita, wealth per capita, uh, starting in 1800 to today. And it goes like this. I mean, it's just this, this, para, this uh, hyperbolic, uh, uh, arch going up, uh, that, you know, tremendous increase in wealth, tremendous increase in the um, well-being of the average person. For the first time in human history, the phenomenon of mass prosperity and, and uh, the disappearance of mass starvation. And all of that's happening, but the intellectuals were saying, no, we want to we tell ghost stories. We want to go back to the Middle Ages. We think too much knowledge is, is, is a problem. We should all act on our emotions. So that's one of the things that Ayn Rand did. Is she was the, one of the few people who said, wait a minute, this, this industrial revolution is really important. We need to take the lessons from that and viewing it as a validation of science and reason and the role of reason in human life. Um, the other thing I would take uh, as, as something that I think, uh, now this is probably shouldn't get too much into this because it's like a whole can of worms I'm opening up. But I actually think that Ayn Rand was indirectly influenced by Darwin because Charles Darwin creates a whole new understanding of biology and of human life and the idea of everything being built around the needs of human survival. So if you look back to Aristotle, you know, and he says a man is a rational animal and you go to Aristotle's Dicamachian Ethics, he says, well, you know, what should we do? What, what should the good at which all things aim? says we should look at human nature and basically being looking to actualize uh, our, the good for man basically lies in actualizing our human nature. And since we're rational, we should actu actualize that rationality. But for Aristotle, that turns out to be, well, we should live a life of scientific and philosophical contemplation. <laughs> the idea, you know, he's, again, he's pre-industrial revolution. The idea that, um, that, that, would, that, science, that re rationality and the understanding of the natural world 
would have this dramatic practical effect on life was, you know, it was, it was very far in the future from where he was, he was from what he was seeing around him. Um, but also the sense that when in acting on reason, we're just actualizing our nature, but the idea that reason would have a survival value, that it would be our means of survival. And that's a crucial idea that Ayn Rand took. I'm not sure you could have had that idea before Darwin and his, his way of looking at uh, the idea that we evolved in order to, because of the survival value of various traits that we have, that, you know, that reason evolved because of its survival value, because it helps us to live and survive and, and to, to stave off death, you know, in a, in a host, in, uh, uh, against the various assaults from nature. Uh, now, I meant, hesitate to mention the Darwin thing because it requires a lot more explanation because there were various sort of perverted versions of Darwinism that were brought in as a philosophical and political idea. There was social Darwinism, which was not even a pro, it's viewed as a pro-capitalist ideology. It really wasn't. Um, or there's, you know, Darwin was, was taken by the left uh, or various people who were sort of more totalitarian in bent as this idea that, oh, well, it, it was merged with determinism. So the idea is we're all, you know, Darwinism shows that we're all just machines and we're determined uh, to act, socially determined to act in a certain way. And so therefore it was used uh, by the left. So there were lots of uses and abuses of Darwin. Uh, but I think that that change in outlook on, uh, on biology as a whole, you know, looking at every species in terms of the needs of its survival as being the central animating force that shaped that species and then applying that to human beings. I think that has a big impact. Um, and the other thing I would say is that we live in an era that is far more scientific and technological than the men of the Enlightenment, the philosophers of the Enlightenment could ever have imagined. I mean, it's, it's beyond their, their wildest imaginings. And we live in a society in which their, the things that they sort of vaguely hoped for have come true to such a great extent. You know, most of us uh, don't work with our hands. We don't work labor in the fields. You know, we, we don't, uh, uh, we've been liberated from th that physical effort. And, you know, it's at some time in the mid 20th century, we passed the point at which the majority of American workers uh, are white collar workers rather than blue collar workers. So the, you know, the idea that was sort of radical when Ayn Rand, still seemed kind of radical when Ayn Rand proposed it in the 1950s, the idea that the mind is the ultimate source of production, as opposed to, you know, uh, blue collar union guys twisting knobs, twisting bolts at a factory. The idea that the mind and, and innovation is, the, is the, the main source of wealth. It's almost a cliche now, right? In the era of Silicon Valley and all of that, that you know, technological and scientific innovation and thinking is the fundamental source and the thing that's, that's um, transforming the world we live in. So I think the fact that that's become so much even more a day-to-day -day, daily um, pervasive, unavoidable part of our lives makes those enlightenment ideals all the more uh, worth looking back to and figuring out how does this all really work out in terms of uh, uh, the, the, the way we're actually living in here in the 21st century with this fabulous wealth and science and technology that we have. I think that's beautifully said. So just to sum up, can you just say again, the set of ideas and ideals that you really see as being part of the enlightenment and how you want us to carry this torch forward into the rest of the 21st century? Okay, so the basic ideas of the enlightenment are reason, science, 
individualism, self-interest, usually they call it self-interest properly understood, but self-interest as being a valid, uh, a morally valid uh, principle of life and political freedom in the form of representative government and free speech. And those are the things that we need to I mean, defend because they are the things that shaped the world we live in. We live in a world of political freedom, at least those of us who are fortunate enough to live in free countries, which is more people than has ever in the history of man uh, live in free countries, you know, that, that um, capitalism and pursuing our own, being free to pursue our own interests and being free of, uh, to a much larger extent than we ever have been before, of traditional restrictions on our lives. Uh, and also, you know, living in a world shaped by science and technology, we're living in that world, right? <laughs> so we are living those ideals. But we, I think the biggest thing we have to face up to now is that we are living in a world where we, we live according to those ideals. But if you go to the elite levels of the culture, and to the certainly the loudest, some of the loudest voices out there, uh, and some of the ones that are most influential, they're people who are still still doing what Mary Shelley was doing in 1818, which is they're still sort of blinkered and they're denying that and they're trying to say, no, that's all terrible. It was all a mistake. And let's go back to, if you're on the right, you say, let's go back to, uh, you know, traditional religious values. The enlightenment was a mistake. We, we should go back to throwing an altar. Uh, or if you're on the left, you're saying, oh no, the Western civilization is terrible because it's racist. Because and yet this is one of the reasons why I oppose the term Western civilization because the the people most committed right now to the idea that West that 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 these Enlightenment values are a distinctly white European uh, that they're distinctly tied to a certain race and a certain continent and a certain national origin. The people most committed to that right now are the pe people on the left who are against it. So the idea that you know everything's really determined by your race and your uh, the accidents of your birth and your background and your heritage, that's the 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 view and the view on the left. I think we're we need to defend that you know more than ever. We need to understand what these ideas are to breathe new life into them, to understand how they apply to us uh, here in the 21st century, and just simply to say to recognize that we live in a world that's been shaped in, um, unbelievably for the better by these ideals, and instead of fighting against them <laughs> and trying to deny them and trying to pretend none of this really happened, we should be trying to understand it and adopt it and move forward with it. Thank you so much. I, I don't know if I could have said it better myself. So to, we're almost out of time, but let people know if they want to find out more, how can they find out more about your work and get in touch? Well, well, the article you saw was published in my newsletter. Uh, you can go to uh, trazinskiletter.com, T-R-A-C-I-N-S-K-I letter.com. Sometimes I wish I had a, a name that's easier to spell, so I have to <laughs> it to people. Um, and uh, you can find some of my work at, at The Bulwark, where I write frequently. And uh, I've also, uh, we talked about the Ayn Rand connection. There's a chapter in, uh, I wrote a book called, So Who is John Galt Anyway? A Reader's Guide to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. And there's a chapter in there that's specifically about Ayn Rand as a, an Enlightenment philosopher and her connection to the Enlightenment. Uh, I view her as sort of the continuation and in some ways the completion of the Enlightenment. Um, and so uh, please check out that book as well. Uh, as a lot of, it's a series of essays based on issues that are raised in that book, literary and historical and philosophical. Well, thank you so much again for joining me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Bye, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. 
If you'd like to join in the conversation, you can become a member for free and join our 1776 Forward community on Locals.com. See you there.